Despite over 30 years of heavily funded research, there is no laboratory test that indicates the presence or absence of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. The dominant medical idea, especially in the US, is that ADHD has a biological cause and should be treated with medication. And this has resulted in large numbers of children right throughout the world being given drugs. Now, naturally, this is quite controversial, and today's author, Dr. Marilyn Wedge, well, she's hugely critical of giving children drugs. She's a US family therapist, and her latest book is called A Disease Called Childhood, Why ADHD Became an American Epidemic. Marilyn, uh, thanks for taking time out this morning to have a chat with me. Oh, thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. What was it that was really bugging you in your head that, uh, that prompted you to write this book? What was bugging me is that between 1988, when I began my practice as a child and family therapist, and 2012, I saw an astronomical rise in children who, who were being sent to be evaluated for ADHD were already on medication and the parents were concerned about the medication or they didn't know whether to medicate. And in 19, between 1988 and say 1995, I, I, didn't, I never heard of ADHD. It just wasn't a big issue. And today, these days, every parent is concerned. And, and so I, I, I wanted to look into this. Why are we medicating our children, 11% of our child population, the figures, uh, the figures that you give in, in your book are, are really astronomical. Like, uh, was it something like 13% of boys and about 5% of girls in the U.S. are diagnosed with ADHD? Correct. That's a huge amount. And 6 million children are taking stimulant medication. And I guess we, we should mention here, uh, today, we, the, the two main drugs that we will be talking about are Ritalin and Adderall. And now, they're both amphetamines. Well, Ritalin is a methylphenidate, which is close, and uh, Adderall is an amphetamine. Uh, but they're chemically very similar in structure. Can you explain to everyone why, uh, because it's, I guess it's just kind of counterintuitive that someone with uh, ADHD is given amphetamines. Right. It's a paradoxical effect. Um, and it was... It was, it was discovered really in the 1930s and it was used uh, by bomber pilots first in Germany uh, to help bomber pilots stay alert and focused. And so it, it kind of calmed them down and allowed them to do this very stressful work. And when the American military found out about these amphetamines, we call Benzedrine, uh, every um, American uh, pilot had bennies in his pack, in his kit. So it was discovered uh, early on that these amphetamines could calm um, a person down and, and narrow the focus. And then, of course, um, when Char Dr. Charles Bradley uh, started using them on children, he noticed that uh, the children were able to stay calm. So the U.S. is leading the world with uh, the view that the, the, the symptoms of ADHD are, are a medical problem and that requiring this medication of children. But this view is not exactly shared with all other countries. For, for example, that you, you write that uh, you're eight times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD in the U.S. than in France. 
That's correct. And, and 80 times more likely than in Finland. Um, I think the traditions in European countries, at least the ones I looked at, France and Finland, are, are stronger with respect to seeing children's problems as responses to their environment. So that if a child is not happy in school or if a child is having hearing parents fight at home, um, one fixes the situation rather than uh, medicating the child. Um, also, the diagnostic process is much different in France than in the United States. In the United States, a child can get a diagnosis of ADHD and a prescription for stimulants in 15 minutes, in, a 15, in one 15-minute visit to the doctor's office. In France, it takes eight hours of careful consultation with the child and the family. Sorry, so if I, you mean if I just go to my normal uh, medical doctor uh, for, a, for a quick diagnosis, I can, in 15 minutes, that seems like an extraordinarily short amount of time. That's the situation here, Craig. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but that's that's really it. I mean, they, the teacher usually sends a report. The child is not paying attention. The child is disruptive. The child is not doing his homework. And the pediatrician thinks it's, oh, it must be ADHD and gives a prescription. And that is because biological psychiatry has really kind of taken over the field of psychiatry in the United States. And not so much, I think, in some other countries. Let, let's look at uh, what you're saying here, that uh, biological psychiatry has taken over. Um, and I guess the best way to start uh, tackling your arguments uh, is to look uh, a little bit at the history. And by this, I mean the DSM. And so my question is, what is the DSM and why is it so important Right. Well, the DSM stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And that's the book that psychiatrists and other doctors use to diagnose mental disorders in children and adults. Um, the first two editions of the DSM, the children's problems were seen as reactions to something in their world. So it was called hyperkinetic reaction to childhood. And so the, the idea was something was disturbing the child in their world, or else the child had a true biological disease that, that caused hyperactivity, such as encephalitis, meningitis, or brain tumor, or a head injury. So that, that was one way of looking at um, children's problems. It was the, ch the problem was in the child's environment. In the 1970s, um, a group of psychiatrists in at Washington University in St. Louis began to develop a, a theory, a worldview, that mental disorders were rooted in a biological cause in the brain. And the DSM-3, the third edition, which came out in 1980, reflected this worldview. And it was thought that children's uh, attentional problems are not about a reaction, but about a problem in the child or in the child's brain or in their nervous system. Well, um, pharma was very involved with the DSM-3. So when you say um, pharma, you mean? Pharmaceutical industry, the drug companies. Um, they, they were a very uh, hand in glove with some of the psychiatrists. So uh, children's problems sort of shifted 
from having a situational root to having a biological root, even though no biological cause has been found to this day after 30 years of research. Um, so after the DS so the DSM-3 did not meet with approval in France. And I found that fascinating. Um, France, the French child psychiatrists wrote their own manual to classify and diagnose children. They, they were having none of this biological model because they had very strong traditions about children. So in the United States, it just took off. The DSM-4 and DSM-5, which was recently published, um, all reflected this view that all of our human problems are rooted in uh, some sort of brain defect or neurological defect and not in our life situation. Yeah, so, so let me just get this straight in my head. So under the DSM classification, uh, a child with brain damage uh, and a child and another child let's say with emotionally abusive parents they're, they're both classified in exactly the same way they were in the DSM3 yes and it's and, and then it's it still continues in the DSM4 and 5 there's no distinction so here you have children with brain damage and children with um, you know true stressors in their life uh, being classified by symptoms by having the same symptoms. So they're just lumped together in one group. Exactly. Because the whole idea was to um, help psychiatrists make diagnoses by just looking at symptoms, because symptoms were observable and could be agreed upon. You do talk about this change uh, to a biological idea, I mean, which uses drugs to treat the symptoms of ADHD as as quite an appealing one to parents, because it meant that the, the focus is now on the child's brain or biology and not on their environment or parenting skills. Right. Yeah, that was one reason that, um, well, let's, let's go back to history. Psychoanalysis was the main form of therapy in the United States uh, up, until, up until the DSM-3 in 1980. Um, but psychoanalysis did say that the parenting environment, that early childhood, uh, did uh, was the source of all psychological problems, and uh, and so parents didn't like that uh, when when uh, they brought their child to a psycho psychoanalytic type therapist. Um, the the therapist would often say, well, if you make some changes in the way you're parenting, maybe have some more consistent discipline. The parents just left. They, they didn't like that because we parents feel guilty. We, we don't want to feel like we're doing something wrong for our children. Um, so the, the new mystique that came out in 1980 said parents are not responsible for their child's problems. It's a brain defect. It's an illness. So it's like diabetes or um, bronchitis. The parent is not to blame. Uh, we give the child a medicine and that takes care of it. So parents were really let off the hook and psychoanalysis went into um, a, a nosedive from which it has never uh, come back from. You also are quite critical of the diagnostic criteria for ADHD in the DSM as being too broad. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> You know, I was I was at the, I was taking my grandchildren to the park. My grandsons, I have uh, age three and six, to the park on the weekend, and I noticed a, a phrase came to mind from the DSM as if driven by a motor, 
Well, my two grandsons were like as driven by a motor. They were so happy to get out there and be in the park that uh, it, I, I went through all the all the symptoms that, that would qualify them for ADHD and they had them all. I mean, they were distractible. They went from the swing to the slide to this and that. And they were, they were not quiet. One of the um, symptoms of ADHD is that a child cannot play quietly. I'm not sure. What, I've never seen a child play quietly, a young child. So um, it is all these symptoms which, to me, are more like normal boyhood, if not normal childhood, at least normal boyhood. You uh, you also comment that um, Mr. Spitzer, I can't remember his first name, but Spitzer, the, the person in charge of the DSM version 3, who, who introduced uh, this biological model or this the biological ideas uh, for ADHD. He, he, he later came out to regret doing that. Yes, he did. Um, in an interview, uh, I think just last year or a couple years ago, he, he said that they had not found a biological cause for any of the diagnoses, apart from the obvious ones like Alzheimer's disease and epilepsy, that none, uh, not depression or anxiety or any childhood diagnoses, they had not found one single biological cause. And he did regret the enterprise. It's a rather damning comment by one of the uh, main authors of the book. Well, it is a damning comment. And also the um, lead author of the DSM-4, psychiatrist Alan Francis, who's a major voice in psychiatry in this country, has come out with a book and goes around taught, lecturing and writing that he's sorry too, that, that he really didn't mean to extend the ADHD diagnosis and there is no biological cause and that he's sorry that his book uh, was a cause of the epidemic. We're going to get back to this and uh, I want to start just to touch on, on I guess, another big critical point and that's, that's marketing, I guess, and the connection between uh, the big pharmacy companies and uh, doctors. And I, I didn't know that the US was only was one of only two countries in the world that allows direct-to-consumer advertising for prescription drugs. Correct. Yes, the United States and New Zealand. And for a while, um, there was a convention that um, pharmaceutical drugs or psychiatric drugs would not be advertised. But it was just a convention, and it was not... There were no laws to back it up. Okay, you're talking about like so, the, it was the UN convention. It was the UN convention. And the U- United States was party to it, signed the convention, but they never passed any laws. So the drug companies for a while voluntarily respected the convention. And then I guess the profit motive set in with a vengeance and they started advertising psychiatric drugs uh, for adults and children, which is not against the law in this country. So let's let's look at this link uh, that you talk about between the big pharmaceutical companies and uh, psychiatry. Well, yes, pharmaceutical companies um, gave psychiatrists a lot of perks. They they gave them uh, first of all they funded their research, they gave them um, consulting fees, speakers fees. They they provided lavish vacations where they would they were under the guise of educating doctors, educating psychiatrists about the benefits of psychiatric drugs. And so, of course, you know, when you when you have a research grant, a, a multi-million dollar research grant from a drug company, 
you know, it's just human to find the results that, or at least they thought it was human, to find the results that the drug companies were, were hoping for. And, um, in, and, and there were some scandals. Uh, three, doc, three psychiatrists at Harvard were called on the carpet by a senator from a United States Senator Grassley. And they were found to be taking money from pharmaceutical companies that they were not reporting to Harvard. So some universities had very strict rules about this. If you get money from pharmaceutical companies, you need to tell us. Well, th those three did not. Um, recently, uh, and this is really optimistic, there have been um, sunshine laws passed such that everything has to be transparent. Any money that, that drug companies give to doctors for consulting fees or speakers fees need to be reported. And they're all available on a, on a wonderful consumer advocate website called ProPublica. And so you can look up whether any psychiatrist has received money. So there has been progress on that front. What effects did this have? Well, the effects that it had was that all the research was biological. Um, they, they looked into genetic causes for ADHD. If you could find a biological cause like genetic or a, a chemical dysfunction in the brain, that would imply a biological solution, namely a psychiatric drug. Um, so all but a tiny bit of the research until recently was done, was funded by drug companies and also NIMH and um, some other organizations, the Mayo Clinic. But um, the research was on biological causes for ADHD. Today, it's changing a little bit. The, the focus from strictly biological causes, which encourage drug treatment, to looking at more uh, environmental causes, like too much video game time, or not enough exercise, or not enough sleep. Um, uh, I just realized that we're, we're talking about these medications, uh, and that they must be kind of new in the last sort of couple of decades. Do we know the, the effects of long-term use, or the effects of these medications over the long-term to children? We really don't, no. There hasn't been, a, if there was research on that, we don't know about it, uh, because not all research is required to be public. It is required to be um, turned into the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, but it doesn't have to be published. So what we read is mostly the positive studies, and we don't read anything about negative effects in the long term. Marilyn, I, I'm kind of uh, fascinated because you're, you're very anti-medication, and I'm interested to ask you about your own work as a therapist and where you have come across the extreme or the exceptional cases where, where you've, you've uh, had to say to the parents, look, I, I'm not an advocate for medication, but in your case, it, it might be necessary. Has this happened? No, it, it has not. There have been cases where I've suggested that the, one of the parents might benefit from medication. Um, and actually... That sometimes helps. It helps more than medicating the child. But no, I, I have, and, and maybe it's just the nature of my practice, but no, I, I, um, no, I have had parents who have come in and when, when they were having terrible marriage problems and the child was uh, exhibiting signs of ADHD, not doing well in school, and the parents were very worried, and when two or three sessions of family therapy didn't work because the marriage problems were so entrenched, they 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 just decided to to medicate. They just left 
the therapy and decided to medicate because it's a quick fix solution. But no, I personally have never referred a child for medication. The way that you advocate um, in your book and I guess in your practice to work together as a family, it, it's, it does seem like a lot of work. I mean, really that you would have to, I mean, it's such, it seems a lot easier to go to drugs. Exactly. It is a lot of work and it is very painful work. You know, a lot of times marriages go on and, and the, the couple focuses on the children and doing everything for the children and they don't take care of the issues that arise in the marriage. Um, so it is a lot of work and it's painful work. You know, for some, when they catch it early, early intervention, it's not so bad. You know, the parents, and when the parents are younger, they're often, oh, okay, you know, we can do that differently. We don't have, you know, we can we can argue when we go out to dinner, we don't have to argue at home. Or, oh, we didn't, we didn't know that we needed to discipline so much. You know, we're too soft-hearted to discipline, but if you say we should, you know, have good rules and structure and consequences, we'll do that. So, um, but if the problems have gone on for a while, and and the which and which means that the child is in bad shape, then it is a lot of work. It's much easier to go to a psychiatrist, get a diagnosis, and give the child a pill. Which, I mean, it it seemed a little bit reading your book that, uh, I mean, not every family just has the ability to be able to to do that amount of work? Well, I, I think they should be given the ability. I, I think that families who, for example, can't afford uh, family therapy privately, they should, um, it should be available to them. Uh, it, it should be government sponsored for uh, a, a social worker or a therapist to go to their home and give them parenting skills or to provide parenting classes uh, for free to parents. You know, in Europe, um, the parenting classes are are very popular, and and they're kind of spreading worldwide. And there are some parenting classes here in the United States, and they do help. They they are a good substitute for medication if parents, as you say, are willing to do the work. When you say parenting classes, what exactly do they teach the parents? They teach the parents um, how to give their child calm consistent, effective discipline. And so I watched one video of one of these programs and uh, they, you know, a little girl was having a, a three-year-old girl was having a timeout and the um, coach that was doing the program encouraged the parent to keep putting her back in her chair until she calmed down and stayed in her timeout for two minutes. And so it's, it's really modeling how to uh, give child consistent discipline and how to give a child structure in their day. The, uh, the overriding question of, of much of your book is if ADHD really is a true biological illness that requires medication and you, you dispute that it requires medication and... Uh, or that it's an illness. I dispute also that it's a biological illness. You you don't believe that it has anything to do with with uh, like being genetically um, passed on or biologically influenced? Okay, I, I will answer those separately. Uh, the genetic evidence is very fragile, I and mean, there is just nothing conclusive uh, linking ADHD with genes. There are some twin studies, but again, they were funded by pharmaceutical companies, so the data is just not there. And, uh, that it is genetic. I, parents like to think it's genetic uh, because then there's nothing they can do about it. As far as biological, 
here's the thing. Um, if a child grows up in a chaotic and abusive household, that does reprogram his brain. That does affect his brain. So that, that research has been done and accepted. And so in that sense, if it, but, but it begins in the external world. It begins with the child um, not getting calm discipline, getting uh, inappropriate discipline or abuse or neglect. That does influence the brain. And in that sense, it, it can be biological. What about, I mean, is it also like the difference between boys and girls and, the, and the, such a higher prevalence in boys? They're more likely to have an ADHD diagnosis. I, I don't think they have ADHD. Um, boys, I, I guess, have testosterone. They, they just need to move around more. I mean, I had two sons and one daughter, and my sons were always on the move. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if it's testosterone or other hormones, but they do seem to have more energy and more need to move around during the day. So they are uh, more likely to get the ADHD diagnosis. I don't think they're more likely to have ADHD. Uh, now, let's actually let's talk about food for a second. Because uh, why is it when I when I buy a strawberry sundae here in Europe, uh, it's it's coloured with strawberry, uh, with actual real strawberry, and in the US it's coloured by red number forty. Um, well, because Europe was quick to respond to the Southampton study on food dyes, the effect of food dyes and preservatives uh, on children, and the um, European Food Agency. After the Southampton study on food dyes, the European um, Foods Agency, I, I'm missing the name right now, but they said to food companies, you need to label these products with uh, the note that it may cause hyperactivity and inattentiveness in children. Uh, the, Europe, the, the food companies that make food in Europe, the big food companies like Nestle, um, they said, okay, we're not going to label, we're going to change to vegetable dyes. And so we're going to use beets and radish and saffron to color our products. We're going to get rid of these food dyes because they were concerned that, that parents would stop buying these foods. There's more of a, um, a tradition in Europe of protecting children, protecting them from drugs and protecting them from foods that might uh, cause uh, hyperactive behavior. In the United States, the FDA had the same information. They had hearings on the Southampton study, and they found that it wasn't cogent enough to um, to ask the food industry to put to label foods with these food colorings. The interesting thing is now uh, Nestle recently, in the last few months, has uh, announced that it will only use natural food colorings in the United States. But that's what 20, 30 years later. <laughs> So, um, the, but, but I just think it's about tradition. I, I think Europeans just protect their children more than the United States. I think we used to, but the drug industry has, uh, has interfered with that. You're, you're quite critical of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I mean, you, you kind of accuse them of, of acting on behalf of giant food corporations instead of looking after <laughs> the, the, the nation's children. <laughs> Um, I wouldn't put it quite that strongly. But oh, you they, did in the book. Uh, uh, you said the FDA should stop acting on behalf of giant food corporations. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, 
uh, yeah, I guess that is an accusation. It's 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 a plea. It's less of an accusation and more of a plea. Like let's stop doing this. But in fact, you know, it's not the FDA that's making changes. It's the food companies. The food companies are responding to consumer demand. But yes, I am critical of the FDA. Um, they had the same information as the European Food Agency, and I feel that they should have taken the same action. Why didn't they? They they were not convinced. They had hearings, and they said that they were. I think the point was that there were no tests on the individual food colorings on the individual dyes. It was more a group of food dyes, and so they they said the da data was not complete. It would have been more complete if they tested each individual food color. Marilyn, be, before we finish up today, I'm very, very um, more concerned than usual that I've covered everything because it is an important issue. Um, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to comment on about the history or about ADHD itself that you think is important? Um, what I what I think might help listeners is perhaps just a few of the um, tactics I recommend for parents. And um, so I have certain strategies in the book um, that, that parents can use to, uh, to help their child be calm and, and uh, do well, be healthy. And one is to be very positive at home, to tell, tell your child that you had a good day. And, and protect your child. Um, it's always a, something like a 1950s mentality of we never heard our, our parents fighting. They, they must have, but I, I never heard it and um, other people never heard it. So not to fight in front of your children, but just to put a positive outlook on things, not to, to talk about your daily stress in front of the child. Um, another thing is to really take some time, even 15 minutes a day, to really be there for your child, turn off your your mobile devices and the television and just kind of be there for your child and, and listen to what he or she has to say. And if they don't have anything to say, that's fine. But just to, to you know, have a, have a sense that the parent is there for them to, to hear what little problems they might want to talk about. The other thing is, I think I've mentioned a lot, um, is calm, consistent discipline. Um, it's really important and to have a structure to ha to have some rules in the house that we have dinner and during dinner we turn off the television and we don't text our friends and we just have a family dinner with healthy nutritious foods um and i think that's that about covers it you know i, I think these are traditional parenting techniques that have um disappeared in our um very busy society of today i did uh, i did also uh, like your quote from Harvard psychiatrist uh, John Redley, um, to think of exercise as medication right. for ADHD. Kids need exercise, especially boys. And so instead, you know, when they come home from school, give them time to run around or ride their bikes or just active play. Um, and the research is starting to come out um, that exercise is is um, a very good treatment for hyperactive behaviors and inattentive behaviors. Why do you think it's changing now? I mean, what is it like, for, for the last couple of decades? Uh, there, there hasn't seemed to be much change in the US, but why do you think it is about this last year or two that is changing the opinions of people? Well, it's become catastrophic. I, I mean, when you have the author, the lead author of the DSM-4 saying, 
I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I started this epidemic. And and some of the early um, proponents of the diagnosis, like Edward Howell, saying, I, I didn't mean to do this. I mean, it's becoming catastrophic for American children. And, and so I think that's what's, uh, it's kind of a wake-up call. A lot of, um, there's been a lot of news about it lately, in the New York Times especially, and uh, an avalanche of books are coming out in the next uh, year on uh, on what's been going on and how to change things as far as children having the diagnosis. Marilyn, uh, well, uh, look, really, thank you very much for taking the time today to have a chat with me. Oh, thank you, Craig. I enjoyed being here. Dr. Marilyn Wedge is a U.S. family therapist. She blogs regularly for Psychology Today and is the author of a number of books. Her latest book, and the one we were talking about today, is called A Disease Called Childhood, Why ADHD Became an American Epidemic. My name's Craig Barfoot, and thanks for, uh, well, thanks for listening to the conversation.